Welcome to Of Saints and Sufis, Musings of a Mormon Mystic. This is your host, David Peck. My Sufi name is Al-Hajj Daoud, and I have a guest here today, Bill Real, and uh, we're going to have a, a bit of a discussion on several topics about religion, spirituality, and uh, just like to welcome everybody along for whatever this ride is going to be and wherever it's going to take us. So welcome, Bill. I'm excited to sit down with you. You know, we had a conversation recently, which you'll you'll make note of here, but um, we both finished that conversation wanting to talk further, and this will give us a good chance to kind of see some of the thoughts that are ruminating inside our heads. I like that. In fact, uh, I'm going to bring up the poet Jalaluddin Rumi today, and so I tend to think of these as ruminations, because a lot of times I'm, instead of rumination, ruminations, I use those a lot of mm. time to sort of bring in uh, Sufism through through its poetry. So thank you and uh, welcome. So we're going to reference uh, an episode of the podcast, Almost Awakened. This is going to be episode 93. Uh, its title is Of Saints and Sufis with David Peck, and I'll post the URL on the website for people who want to follow up on this. So uh, are we ready ready to start here? Yeah, I love well, it. Let's uh, Let's do it. Good. So today we're just going to have a conversation and uh, explore topics, and uh, we don't have a set agenda, but um, do want to um, address things of importance to both of us that uh, also may be important to our listening uh, community. So uh, I thought I would start off by um, referencing back to that episode of Almost Awakened, episode 93, in which uh, episode we were talking about the concept of God which I tend to try and talk about through words like um, the divine or the beloved. I sometimes slip and I'll say God, or I'll quote uh, some scripture that we use Allah or Buddha or something else, but um, try to get at the concept behind those words. Uh, I noted that uh, you were using on occasion uh, the word atheist uh, as a self-descriptor, but I sensed that it, it, there was something else underneath your use of that term, atheist or atheism. And I was just wondering if you want to take a moment and, and talk about what you might mean by being an atheist or about atheism. Yeah, I, I remember one night, you know, I'm I'm laying on the trampoline uh, at a friend's house and I'm with a bunch of friends. We had just had a a big party, but it was the kind of party where everybody's really trying to do some inner work and everybody's having deep conversations about, you know, the universe and, and who we are and how we got here. And I'm looking up and I'm looking at the stars and two thoughts came to mind. One is that I am all alone and insignificant and what a miracle it is that I'm here at this moment. Like when I consider all the things that had to happen in the order that they happened, if anything had been off, if my, not to be crass, but if my mom and dad had made love 10 seconds later or 10 seconds earlier, most likely I wouldn't be here today. And and yet when you carry that back through all the generations, and so I'm laying on this trampoline, I'm looking up at the stars and I just realize how miraculous it is that I'm here and how interconnected we are with everything and how alone we are at the exact same moment. Like it's, it's this juxtaposition of those two, what seems like, um, seems like a, like contradictions, but in reality, they're both true. And it led me on a, a search. I I've spent a lot of time reading things. So books like Sapiens with Yuval Harari, uh, Sex at Dawn and um, Civilized to Death by Christopher Ryan um, I've read a lot of Alan Watts. Uh, we were talking about Ram Dass off the air. So I'm, I'm familiar with kind of this, these modern 
wisdom teachers and I delved into secular Buddhism. And so where I came out was I came from a high demand fundamentalist religion, Mormonism. I was all in on that. I joined it as a convert. I served as a bishop, uh, an ecclesiastical leader of a congregation by the age of 29. And by 32, I have a faith crisis. And little by little, I just deconstruct that to the point where I, I not only couldn't believe it, but I thought it was unhealthy. And so I stepped away. But in my stepping away, I, I kept doing this deconstruction thing. I would read stuff on the historical Jesus by Bart Ehrman or Riza Oslin. And uh, Riza Aslan's uh, book, Zealot, was a huge influence on me. And so I just deconstructed all these myth stories. And where I arrived at the end was that they were all attempts to uh, formalize God in, in ways that I just couldn't get on board with. I couldn't buy into any of the stories. I read the Bhagavad Gita um, you know, I, I remember in that book, there are talking deers and I thought that was crazy. And then I look back and go, well, I had a talking donkey in my, in my myth narrative that, <laughs> so it, they're all, they're all myth. And then I, you know, again, reading sapiens and other kinds of books, I, I came to the conclusion it's all myth, uh, the money in my wallet, you know, here I am reaching in my wallet and I'm pulling out a hundred dollar bill and it's a piece of paper with ink on it. And even ink is a myth and paper is a myth. And so where I arrived is that Again, I'm, it's a bunch of rambling, but to get to this point, which is I don't believe there's a conscious being out in the universe who is listening to our prayers and helping us solve our problems and putting a blessing when we do good and sending a bad thing when we do bad. So I'm atheist in the sense that I don't believe a conscious being is directing the affairs of the earth or the universe. As you pointed out, there was something in the language because I also claim to be a mystic. And what I mean by that is that if I go back in time, 13.7 billion years ago is what science says there was something that happened. And before that something, there was nothing, or at least we can't really approximate what it was. Uh, I, and by the way, I have a hard time believing something came from nothing, right? There was always something. <laughs> makes makes sense. Yeah. It's logic, right? <laughs> And uh, But 13.7 billion years ago, if we go along with the story, it something happened. And from that something, everything happened. Um, it was small and in a certain geographic spot. But from that moment, it became ever expanding and it became everything. So the, the earth, the stars, the moons, the, the black holes, the whatever it is. Uh, Eckhart Tolle once said that we are the universe experiencing itself as a human for a little while. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm in awe of the processes that brought me to this moment in my somewhere along the way, humans developed consciousness and we became aware. And that awareness told us that we were something separate from everything else. And by the way, these monotheistic religions also told us, that we were separate, that the earth was created and that we were placed on the earth to some degree. Also, we were from the dust, right? right. And uh, this idea of being separate, it, our egos and our consciousness tell us that story. But in reality, we are the universe. Something happened and everything came from it. We're, we're not our own thing. We're, we are, we are, like the trees and we are like the rocks and we are like all the pieces and parts that make up 
you know, the universe and specifically this planet. And so, um, to get to the point, I, I think that there's mystery out there. I, I don't, anybody who claims they know what it is, they're almost assuredly missing the mark. There's been too many people who have claimed to have the answers. I know what it's not. I, I can tell you what it's not, but I don't know what it is. And, um, I'm still in awe today of those processes that led to me being here. I want to sit in the space of being interconnected to everything. And I want to recognize that there are a trillion potential possibilities for what is the magical mystery of the universe. Um, I just don't, I just don't believe it's a conscious being sitting on a throne somewhere. Okay, well, that's. Uh, I think I understand better, uh, especially as we begin to refer to the way in which uh, <clears throat> our existence is presented to us through mythos, as you've as you've mentioned there, and and uh, the idea of answers rather than the idea of questions is, uh, I think, an important distinction you've made. How about if we do this? I'm going to maybe mention some things within. Uh, the universal Sufi tradition that might come to bear on on what you've said, and and maybe you could reflect upon them or respond, and we could just have a discussion from that point. I, I jotted several things down. Uh, so, uh, as you know, in many mystical traditions, they deal with the concept of of the divine, if you will, or or, or creator, however you want to put it. They deal with that concept as something as something that is unknowable in the traditional sense. It's something that can't be pinned down. Uh, and, uh, you know, so so we run into the problem of conceptualization, the problem of language itself. But they set next to that the, the knowledge gained through experience. So the notion is, uh, from maybe a Sufi perspective in this case, that, that you on that trampoline, are you're having an experience, and this experience is still with you. I mean, it, 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 it sounds like this is something that really uh, impacted the way you saw yourself, the way you saw your universe, and uh, consequently, uh, the experience of whatever we may want to call uh, the divine, whatever name we might want to give to this, whether there's thrones and whether there's consciousness or setting sort of those descriptors aside for just a moment, seems to be a uh, an, a, a repeated and universal experience throughout time. We find people having these experiences uh, regularly. And sometimes in the West, we call them mystical experiences. Uh, and we deal with the question of ineffability, which is how do I describe this to someone else? And uh, if you're like me, you feel you fall short. You feel like I've, I've given this a good shot with every word I know. I love the end of Dante's Divine Comedy. He's, he's in the Divine Presence, and uh, he says, here, words failed me. High, high imagination fell away, and I was just there. And uh, sometimes uh, experience. So insofar as we deal with that, there is the knowledge from experience and then the ways in which we try to talk about it. And I think in universal Sufism, there's, uh, and in many mystical traditions, there's a, a suspicion of language, a suspicion of words. Uh, I think it's one of the translations of the Tao Te Ching. It says, um, who knows it can't say it, and who says it doesn't know it. And then we, then I think to myself, oh, good, I got to read the rest of this book. <laughs> so you kind of say, yep, if you say it, you don't know it, and then you wrote a book about it. 
And so it's as if we cannot stop discussing it, but at the same time acknowledge that everything we've said is is suspicious. So uh, the way we deal with this, just to kind of put this out here, is a differentiation between essence and manifestation. Essence is that who, what, or why that uh, seems to underlie all of this whether it be something that may have been, may have existed before 13.7 billion years ago or is still existent, that essence is what is ultimately unknowable except through experience. Where do we get the experience? Through the manifestation. That the manifestation is the face, so to speak, metaphorically of that, of that uh, who or what or why that, that lies behind all of that. So I don't know if you, if you haven't much to say about that, but it seems to me that you, you've come to many of your experiences, like most of us do, through uh, an attempt to understand one's place within the manifested reality we call the cosmos. I don't know if uh, yeah. you want to comment on any of this. I, I do. So when I was in my religious system, the outer authorities of that system, the, that system's leadership convinced me that they were the where all be all of wisdom and higher learning and truth and insight. And so that was where I looked for it. When I started to deconstruct, I became, I became, um, I felt safe to start exploring outside of my system. And when I started reading things outside my system, I immediately came across people like uh, Richard Rohr, who is uh, uh, in the Catholic tradition, but very much nuanced, very much um, kind of approaching spirituality universally, kind of that, that space of allowing everybody to kind of figure things out and to not force Catholicism on them. Um, uh, John Shelby Spong was another one, Jack Spong. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just recognize like these two men aren't in my system. According to my system, they don't have the truth. And yet the things they were saying stirred things up inside me so much more than the stuff I was getting from inside. And, and so that took me again on this path of just reading a ton of stuff, Brene Brown, um, Nadia Boltz Weber, uh, just lots of folks that in this religious deconstruction kind of space, they were kind of these wisdom voices. And I just found a lot of wisdom in what they were saying. And uh, oh, go ahead. Okay, good. I was going to say, thank you for mentioning those books. I hope our listeners will feel like can expand their own library. Yeah. Um, as I'm sitting and in, in listening to all that, I, I just became kind of aware that, there were, there were different ways to tackle the world. And one of the other things I did is I started leaving Mormonism. Um, it became safe for me to use uh, drugs. I, I felt called to it. And one of the experiences I had was I used ayahuasca. And we had a shaman. Uh, and this shaman um, handed out the medicine. There were 14 people at this house. We all took it. And then for the rest of the night, five, six hours of the night, we, we were purging, vomiting, and it was purging. It felt, it felt, uh, it wasn't a fun experience to throw up, but you felt called to do it. It was, you, you, you almost enjoyed holding your bucket and throwing up into it. Um, you felt like you were letting something go. And that was the consensus across the room. 14 of us. And you could tell that everybody was having their own mystical experience. And so religious systems 
seem to come in and go, hey, here's how it all works. Let me tell you how the cosmos is organized. Let me tell you who the being is and how he works. And what I learned that night is that everybody really is thinking about the universe, processing the world differently, and their mystical experiences don't match mine. And so for me to come in and go, everybody needs to believe this specific way, I completely recognize misses the mark that, as you're pointing out, like the moment someone names it, they've overstepped their bounds. They no longer have authority to do that. You can already know they don't know it. And, and you've already pointed to that with the quote you said earlier. Um, I've, I've heard people approach it, and I think that's the best you can do. You can kind of tiptoe on the outside of it, just on the margins of it. And you can recognize that certain things cause awe and wonder. Certain things feel like they have truth to them. And the moment you name it, you've stepped further away from it. And so as I did this ayahuasca experience with these 14 people, it was obvious during the experience, everybody was having a different experience. But then the next morning, the shaman brought all of us back together to kind of process the night. And so 14 of us are sitting in a room in a circle and we're all just sharing our experiences. There were things that I could relate to. There were things I could not relate to. There were things that I thought were true. There were things I thought were false. There were things that people went and did their own inner work that wasn't my inner work to do. And so it seems like when I separate religion and spirituality, religion is always telling you what is the way. And here's the way. And here's how you get there. And spirituality calls you to go have your own mystical experience inside and to apply your own definitions to it and to create your own structures and your own boundaries. And so that night I just learned as, as you're kind of talking about, and now I'm kind of commenting on is that my personal opinion is that if anyone in your life is writing out how to get back to God or writing out what the rituals have to be or what the steps are, on some level, it misses the mark. Not that there isn't value in rituals, not that there isn't value in having conversation around mystical experiences so that we all can learn. Because I think what I also learned in ayahuasca was the value that in most learning environments, we all sit with the same lesson. And generally speaking, we're all learning the same thing. If I sit in a history class in eighth grade, we're all learning about Martin Luther King. When you do drugs in a group, and you're using those drugs as medicine and you're having a mystical experience, what you realize is that it's really one of the very rare environments where everybody is being asked to and feel safe to have their own unique mystical experience. And what happens in that moment is that everybody's learning something. Some of it will be of value to you. Some of it won't. But the ability for everybody to come back together after the same experience and teach each other different things is extremely unique to me uh, that can only be found kind of in a meditation space or a uh, conscious altering space like uh, drug use as well, which meditation is also conscious altering. But you, if everybody gets together and alters their consciousness, then everybody goes somewhere different. And, and that to me is the value that seeing that I don't have a right to tell other people what it is or, and maybe even what it isn't and to let everybody kind of come to their own conclusion um, anyway, no, I think that's, uh, I think you're, you're 
talking about the exploration uh, and uh, the exploration within groups, the exploration within sort of a companionship or society uh, might be called a, a sangha in, in universal Sufism, for example, we'll use all those terms, an umma, uh, some kind of a community of, of learners. I, I uh, want to share a couple things, then we can maybe respond to these and come back to, to what you've said again. Um, so I'm just going to relate a little bit. You had a trampoline experience. A lot of my experiences come through dreams. And I think that uh, within the universal Sufi tradition, the notion is, is that we're in, in the realm of corporeal bodies, right? We're in, a, we're in a created realm. Their notion is the next realm of consciousness they're going to call the Alama Mathal or the, the uh, realm or world of the imaginal, not the imaginary, but the imaginal in which we have to use different aspects of our being to understand and comprehend and it's often presented to us symbolically or it's often presented to us uh, metaphorically and these become rich uh, uh, sort of uh, environments we can return to to learn the the briefly the dream I want to share on what you said and we can talk about this is um, uh, and explore the idea of community I, ha I have a a recurring dream. I probably had this dream, I don't know, eight or 10 times in my life. And, and I'm traveling. I'm actually with my wife. We've left a city behind and we're wandering in a wilderness and uh, we're joined by other people who are wandering in this wilderness. And it's a typical kind of Utah wilderness, lots of sagebrush and sandy soil and, and all of that. And night comes and we find ourselves out in the middle of nowhere. And so we, we get the idea to build a fire. We build a fire and we have nothing to eat. We have we have no food, but uh, each of us in our little pack pulls out a, a platter or plate, and it sits in front of us, but there's nothing on it. But we begin sharing what our trials and toils have been or what our experiences have been. And as we do that, as someone shares, food begins to appear on their plate. And, and then we pass it around to each other. And so we share each other's food. We share each other's drink. We share each other's. And as we do this, I'll eat something from somebody else. And I'll go, oh, I, I know what this is. I've, I've tasted this before, although it isn't how they tasted it. It isn't how, you know, their experience is their experience. And I wonder, so first of all, it's the notion of a community of sharing versus a community of authority. And and I think that maybe that fits into your your um, your issues, and I I can share many of those same things issues with um, authority. Uh, often I think a faith crisis becomes an authority crisis because if you've given yourself over to an authority, and then your experience brings you into contradiction with that authority, then you'll have a, a faith crisis because what you've given your faith to does no longer matches your experience, your reality. Uh, and that often can be an authority crisis because uh, some people will use the term betrayed or some people, I was betrayed by who, whatever. I had a friend who said my seminary teacher betrayed me uh, um, and so on and so forth. And so an authority crisis instead in a community, everybody has a voice. Everybody has something to share and whether or not it's the way I experience or whether or not it lines up with me, there's almost kind of a, a feasting going on in which we can come to terms with uh, how the community works and how the community functions through their experiences in which they are the authority of their plate, right? They're the ones that decide 
the experiences they're going to share. They're the ones that decide the words they're going to put them in. And so it's as if there's there's no overarching authority. It's just the authority that each one has over their path, but it can be shared in community. I don't know if you want to maybe touch on any of those things, but to me, it seems that the spiritual path can have community. What the spiritual path doesn't have is definitive authority. Each person has to assume authority and responsibility for themselves. Yeah, the the best spaces I've been in are spaces where I've been around people, a group of people who think deeply about the world. They're reading, they're curious, they're thinking, they're wrestling. And then we get together and we kind of see where we're all at. What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching? What's what's your favorite movie you've seen recently? What's the TV show that you're 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 watching? What's the books on Audible that you've downloaded recently? What are you enjoying? What's causing you to be fascinated with the world around you and to be learning more about what's going on inside of you? And and what I found in those experiences, I've got friends who talk to plants and the plants talk back to them. Do I believe that? I don't know. I don't I don't know that that makes sense to me, but I also am not in a place where I want to condemn that as absolutely false. Like maybe, maybe they're having a real experience. And at the very least, I know the person well enough that they're not crazy. They have their, they're stable mentally and they believe that the plants communicate with them. Um, I've got folks who believe in energy work. I've got folks who um, are, are, very, you know, stoic atheist, and they just don't buy into any mystery in the universe. They just think it's all explained by science. And I really value being around that diversity without anybody feeling like they need to be the leader of the group and without feeling, without me feeling someone needs to be the leader of the group, that we're all just peers learning from each other. And you get to take, as you pointed out, you get to take what's of value and use it in your own life and see where it takes you, or you can discard it and find something else that occupies your time that no one feels pressured by any particular person in the group to live their life their way. And there's a mutual respect, even among the different points of view and opinions that like, maybe, maybe life isn't exactly the way it goes in my head. And maybe it's not exactly the way it goes in her head or his head either. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that you, you've hit on um, some points there of uh, the idea of sharing, but also the idea of bringing in from other sources. And so maybe the value of a book like the Tao Te Ching isn't only that it teaches if you know, you can't say, and if you say, you don't know. I mean, that is a, that's an important thing to teach us. But then we have a whole bunch of other things in which it's like items on that platter, it seems to me that as you're talking to me, I can imagine that you, uh, your books that you're reading present these, these things you can taste, these things you can ingest, these things that you, you, you find out what they mean to you and how they come in. And, and so the value of scripture, for example, or the value of a myth isn't in the value, to me, it isn't in the value of telling other people what they have to believe. It is in the value of allowing the soul to explore, allowing the soul to taste, and uh, uh, and and uh, bring into oneself. I find it odd that uh, within our own, within my, I think we have a kind of shared tradition in Mormonism, wherever it went, however long it was for you, but but in, in, that, in that sort of um, religious setting, uh, we have this teaching that says, it's by our own experience that we learn to judge good from evil. 
but I don't know that we really practice that very well because then we go to we go to an authority figure who tells us this is good and this is evil, and and so uh, it's by our own experience, and I think that that's that's an important one. And so I think that often faith crises and authority crises go together, and for some people the faith crises crisis is is a more narrow one within an authoritarian system where they can adjust within that system but for others they find that they have to jettison the whole package in order to uh, begin to not just deconstruct but but construct and I wouldn't say reconstruct I don't I don't really care for that either I, I think we're all constructing so I don't know if you have anything to share on that um, yeah you're you're mentioning myth um. The, the the often in our world myths are made very literal so for instance i grew up a very patriotic person i i just i don't know why but when the national anthem played when we were doing the pledge of allegiance i was very judgmental of anyone else who didn't respect it to the degree i was respecting it i i thought it was important to be patriotic and people are telling me like the united states is the best country on earth and then I'd go and do the research and I'd realize that these other European countries like the Netherlands, Switzerland, Denmark, uh, those places, when they, when they measured the factors of uh, personal happiness, personal progress, personal pro- uh, the collective production of the, of the, of the people, um, essentially trying to get to who were the most happiest and most productive people on the planet. It was those countries. USA became something around like 14th to 17th place. And so you realize, you realize like your history teachers and your system are telling you a story and they want you to believe it because we all work together and collaborate better when we have a common story to connect with each other on. And religion is no different. Religion does the same thing. But myth can also be seen as myth. Every time I go to the movie theater and I watch the Avengers, I know that they're not real. I know that the story is fiction and I still get something from it. I still see good and evil play out. I still see what happens when you make bad choices. I still get to see, even if you sacrifice your life in the name of good, Good things can come from one person giving up their life so that a collective number of people get to continue on. So tools, resources, education, information, all that stuff can be transferred through myth. In fact, I think it's the reason for myth. Sapiens makes the argument that um, Yuval Harari makes the argument that in the beginning, we were in really tiny tribes and we knew each other well enough just based on intimacy. We sat around the fires, we danced together together. We hunted together, we gathered together, we knew what our strengths and flaws were, but then the tribe got big enough that, you know, I knew Brit, but I didn't know David Peck, right? And so Brit can now tell me through the, through the technology of gossip, which humans developed and invented uh, unknowingly, but humans use gossip to connect a slightly larger group. And so now 25 people to 150 people can now have a communication. And, um, those 25 to 50 to 150 or so can now uh, get to know each other. But now you get to 150 and that doesn't work anymore because now I know Brit, but Brit doesn't, doesn't know and Brit knows you, but none of the three of us know Gary, John and Louise. And so um, myth became the technology we humans used in order to transfer information about each other 
and to transfer information about how we survive and information about who our friends are and who our enemies are, how we hunt. I was just talking to my wife the other day, and again, I'm kind of a rambler. When I talked to my wife the other day, we were talking about, so when you get to 150 and you're using myth to tell the story, myth really is powerful because what it does is if everybody can agree to keep telling the story and imposing it as literal is I think the easiest way to get everybody to buy in and to get everyone to continue to pass the story along. Within the stories of myth are the technology that allows a tribe or a society to perpetuate. So as my wife and I are sitting and having a conversation the other day, we're talking about the public school system. And the public school system was a invention in order to pass along, to transfer technology from generation to generation, the very basic skills of what we need. Because we don't trust, and we also, I think to some degree, intuitively know it doesn't work. If we just leave parents, generation after generation, to instruct their children to pass along the necessary information that is basic to a society um, moving along, it won't work. Some parents will teach this, some will teach that, and then two or three generations later, everybody's disconnected and nobody knows the same things. Myth does that as well. The least valuable way to process myth is as a literal story, though. If you're told what meaning to make from it, and if and if in and, and it just naturally happens that in myth, sometimes bad things are posed as good and good things are posed as bad. And when you take it all literally, you have no room for self-introspection. You have no room to look at the story on a deeper level because you're not allowed to interpret it any other way. So when we give people myth. And we allow them to see that the story is made up. I think people in those moments will get something more from it that is more important and more valuable. But the loss is that they, it may be more difficult to get all of us collectively to buy into it. I think that there's uh, a lot that's been said there that would that reflects the mystical path and the spiritual path. We did want to talk um, about religion and spirituality, and why uh, traditions like Sufism, and there are many others, right, yogic traditions, there's there's several traditions out there, but why we would consider them uh, wisdom traditions is because uh, there are certain persons who have traveled down the path of, of spiritual experience in a different way, or or are able to now share or teach, but, um, uh, and so we want to hear the myth through them, and maybe a person that can pose questions to us about the myth based upon our own experience, and to assist uh, someone in in uh, opening up um, their own their own uh, self to understanding what those myths might offer to them. In other words, a reflective a reflective tradition. I think that that spiritual traditions are by and large reflective traditions because. Uh, for example, I am a Sufi guide, right? And so, as <clears throat> as an uh, as a guide, what is my job? Well, my job is not to tell other people what to believe or what to think or how to feel, uh, but I may, in working with someone who trusts me and who I love uh, and and care about, uh, we may come up with things that I can share with them out of this sort of grander myth we might call Sufi tradition. 
that will um, help them awaken themselves in a, in a way that they feel is is beneficial. And so, to me, the difference uh, between one of the differences between uh, religion and spirituality resides in in the fact that the spiritual tradition, whether it be your ayahuasca tradition or or another one, is that the guide. Um, well, in, in your ayahuasca, I would just say what what occurred to me is the guide lets you vomit and lets you have your experience while you vomit. So it doesn't say now vomiting is this and your experience has to be that. Yeah. They don't set up an, inter- an interpretive framework by authority. This is, I think, what drove, um, uh, if I can be biblical here for a second, New Testament at least, I think it's what drove uh, the certain of the Pharisees or scribes that Jesus was interacting with, absolutely crazy. They would say he speaks as one having authority. Well, in, in the wisdom tradition, spiritual tradition, you can't speak otherwise. We each, if we speak from our soul and from our experience, we are speaking with authority because we're the author of our own soul. We're the author, you know, by your own experience notion. And so, uh, I was traveling once just to put this story out there, traveling once with uh, another faculty person. I'd, uh, they wanted to learn about Sufism, so we'd gone to India. We're spending about a week in Ajmer at the tomb shrine of a guy named Moinadine Chishti, a great Sufi, and staying with my friend Salman Chishti. And we were walking along having a discussion, and my friend was listening to what I was saying. So he said to Salman, what do you think of what David is saying? And and Salman turned around and he said, what Professor David says is what we say. And then we continued down the road. And I think this person was pretty impressed. Like, I'm fully embedded with this Sufi tradition. What I say is what they say. Uh, and in reality, what he was trying to teach, uh, what he was trying to say is, if David speaks from his experience and speaks in the best truth he knows how to speak, that's what we say. Because if anybody speaks from their experience, and speaks as honestly as they can, that's, they are the authority. So spiritual tradition recognizes that each person has to assume responsibility for themselves. And and so anyway, I I thought I'd throw that out there, and that allows us to envision God, so to speak, the divine in any way we care to envision it, because to force a vision upon somebody else is a form of spiritual violence to them. We, we, We abuse them. Okay. When when I think of my most ignorant moments, they are when I am sharing with others my life experience, and I naively made the assumption in my head that the way the world works for me is the way it works for everyone else. Mm. And so I open my mouth and I say something about the way the world works, and it never fails. Right next to me is somebody who the world works different for, and they go... Bill, I hear you, but that's not my experience. Here's my experience. And I go, damn it. Um, The world doesn't work that way for everyone. It works that way for me. And there are exceptions to everything. Not just like, oh, here's the rule. The rule applies. And there's maybe an exception out there somewhere. It's like if you sit and talk to enough people, you realize almost on every type of humanity that you are, somebody in the room is doing it differently than you. I've got a game that we play once in a while called moral dilemma. And it asks a question that gives you two choices, but it puts you right on the line of like, would you do this or would you do that? And and some of these are iffy. And, And as you go around the room and let everybody answer the question, you realize like, Oh, everybody reasons out their morality different. Everybody is picking and choosing 
what choice they would make in these scenarios based on a different logic, based on a different life experience, based on a different predisposition of how they were born. And so it, it seems ignorant to me that, you know, Moses, when he sees the burning bush, he comes away from the burning bush and says, listen, everyone, sit down at my feet. Here's how the world works. It, it seems it would have been of more value. And again, no offense to Moses. I'm, I'm taking what religion gave me as the way to interpret that story. Um, it seems to me Moses should have come off the burning bush and came down and said, hey, all of you, you ought to starve yourselves for a few days. Go up there and sit by that burning bush. And, and then let's all come back down and talk about what happened. Because inevitably, what would have been is that everybody would have had a different experience. And Moses might have learned and religion might have learned that um, it wasn't just what Moses experienced that's the truth for everyone. Rather, everyone ought to go to the burning bush and get their own truth. Well, I think you've you've <laughs> you've talked about exactly what the universal Sufi path deals with, which is uh, if if your experience is the only certain knowledge you have, not your ideas necessarily, not your words necessarily, but that which comes out from your experience and out from from within yourself, then you're going to have absolute diversity, right? Because you have no you've probably had this happen. You could go to a church meeting and there would be talks about whatever. And uh, people, if you talk to them about it later, you'll realize you all took different things away from that talk. And a lot of times uh, people are trying to relate them to their own experience. To me, that's really what a testimony meeting in the Mormon tradition is about. People getting up and talking about experience. Every once in a while you get someone who's going to teach us what things mean will become an authority up there uh, in a religious sense. Yeah. So the question isn't the, the value of your experience from a mystical perspective. That is the ultimate value. The, the question is, well, then why should one person stand up and tell everybody what all these absolutely individual experiences mean and and so again, we're back to the crisis of authority, and um, and so anyway, I, I just thought that uh, that to me that's the essence of the religious dilemma is once you set yourself up as an authority, then you have to be if you set up uh, moral perfection as an aspect of authority, then watch out because everybody that's in the position of authority is a very fallible human being, including and, almost every guru that's lived. Oh, of course. Absolutely. And yeah. so, so the question becomes one of tasting and accepting and, and allowing, uh, according to our, what we feel is, is the best way to do that, but not, not to say, oh, I, that person is perfect. We tend to idealize them. It brings me uh, to another thing I want to talk about quickly, which is uh, within Sufism, uh, one of our, uh, 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 one of our uh, sort of how do I want to put it? A master within a chain of transmission of Sufi wisdom, Hazardinai Khan, who is credited with kind of bringing Sufism to the West in the early 1900s, uh, talked about the God ideal. Um, Jalaluddin Rumi talked about the God of belief, not, not the actual divinity, but the one that we create or formulate within ourselves or with our, within our own uh, being, whether that be... Um, nature of the cosmos, the laws of the universe, whether that be Baal or whether that be, you know, uh, uh, God in a burning bush, or that the notion is, is we are inevitably going to do that. And that whether or not that becomes a blockage or whether or not that becomes a challenge 
uh, often manifests itself through our experience. So um, very briefly, my experience was with a daughter that was sick for 20 months with a liver disease and then died, and I tried all the priesthood blessings and everything else. What happened is none of them worked. And uh, rather, but it, but I, I realized that it was probably because I had created a God in my own mind and in my own heart that didn't do my bidding, right? And so, so the faith crisis that came about was one in which I realized that my experience and my ideal no longer meshed, and I had several choices to abandon the ideal altogether, to modify the ideal, uh, right? To and so. I wonder if uh, we aren't all going through faith crises all the time, but for some of us, we're so invested in the religious system that when the faith crisis and crisis of authority comes, we just have to jettison the whole thing and maybe approach these questions from a different angle. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, just I want to say you're pointing to the idea that we individually missed the mark but I only want to insert, like, we did come to it honestly. The system told us to trust it. It handed us the curriculum. It gave us the lessons. And it told us not to trust the information that was found anywhere else. So it became very natural for us to read the system's material and to go, oh, they they, they are the truth tellers. They're the ones who know. They've told us how the system works. And hence, here's how it works. So to then learn later that it doesn't. Yes, we are each personally responsible, and no, we each came to it honestly because others gave it to us and told us to trust it. Yeah, that's that's a, an, a I think a very important point. When we assume authority over another soul, then I think that we are we are yeah. committing spiritual violence. And yeah. uh, so, I, no, I, I agree with you. I was going to maybe mention that um, we we. It seems that you and I have come out of this Mormon background uh, uh, differently, and and so exploring that uh, just a little bit might be uh, of interest because I'm still I, I still go to uh, church meetings on Sundays and I still participate. I'm the ward choir director, but uh, a lot of people have figured out that I don't do it the way anybody else does yeah, it, right. uh, and I don't really care for a lot of things. We were in a Sunday school class uh, a little while ago and. Someone brought up the um, uh, book of, uh, oh, who was it? I don't, I don't remember, but it, Tobit or something, some apocryphal book. And they brought it up and said, of course, this is apocryphal. And then they asked me what I thought because I taught history and comparative religion and things. And I said, I think that the whole Old Testament's apocryphal. We have no idea where any of these texts came from. And they go, well, what value is it? And I said, well, the value is in, in the tasting of it from my own experience. And so I don't worry about, I, as, a, as kind of a universal Sufi, I'm willing to accept that text knowing its historicity is very problematic. I'm willing to accept as, as, a, uh, as a tasting experience uh, the Book of Mormon, knowing that its historicity is exceptionally challenged because I haven't bought into the line that these this these books are absolutely true under all circumstances instead i've said th- there is wisdom in this book and there's value and it does it could be a non-scriptural text but i guess what i'm saying is accommodating the crisis of faith and the crisis of authority is individual and i don't know if you wanted to maybe explore a little bit of of what it means to uh for you uh kind of to walk that path of can I accommodate this? Can I adjust to this? Do I want to? 
and uh, anyway, I thought I'd put that out there, which is I think we all uh, come to that position. That from my experience, the Sufi position is if I can learn from a gum wrapper ingredient list, then I'll read it. Right? It, yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be authoritative or canonical or. Uh, and it can be problematic. So yeah. at any rate, I'll turn that over to you now. No, no, I love it. Um, part of my current belief system is that I don't believe Jesus walked on water or did anything supernatural. I don't think he reanimated after three days of being dead. But I also find the Jesus character of the New Testament deeply appealing. I started a podcast after losing literal belief in Jesus called The Mythical Jesus. Uh, it's at Christoffaith.org. Mm-hmm. And the whole podcast uh, starts off with the assumption that Jesus is not uh, historical, not in the sense that he never lived. Like there was a guy, Yahshua Bar Yosef, and and he was a, a zealous teacher within Judaism. And, um, you know, he he certainly at some point gets killed. But rather to say like he wasn't really half God in the way that Christian religion imposes that he was, and could we still find value in what he says? And so when you were talking just now, it struck up a couple thoughts. In the Christian tradition, we are told about Abraham uh, going up on the mount to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it is imposed on us that Abraham is a righteous prophet, Isaac is his son, everything is according to God's will, and all of that trauma that is being handed out to Isaac uh, is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And so again, if you work on the ignorant level of, of assuming that your system's authorities are right about the interpretation of that story, you are simply left with some discomfort inside if you're if you're a halfway healthy human being and a recognition that you don't have any authority to challenge the story. Right. So you just have to accept it, hook, line, and sinker, and go throughout your life just working on that base literal level. If instead I'm given permission to challenge the story and go, what would I do if I was Abraham? If a voice came down and told me to sacrifice my son, first I'm going to go, maybe I'm crazy. I'm going to check into a hospital. I'm going to get tested. Um, If that voice continues, I'm going to start taking medicine. If that voice continues, there are other things I'm going to do, right? And maybe at the end of the day, if I'm allowed permission to wrestle with the story, I would I would arrive at something other than Abraham is righteous and he's doing what God asked him to do. There's something else happening because I cannot be okay with the amount of trauma and hurt and harm and unhealthiness that is contained in that story. So when we give permission to people to wrestle with the scriptures and not tell them how to interpret it, in our tradition of Mormonism, we have Nephi cutting off Laban's head, and the idea is that it's better for one man to perish than a whole nation to dwindle in unbelief. And my whole point is, God, you're the creator of the damn universe. You figure out you figure out some other solution because I'm not cutting off a guy's head. My my version of that, just to interpose for a second, is you want him dead, you cut off his head. Right. And, and, and if he can you. threaten – right. And if there's other stories where God's angels can threaten people with flaming swords, he sure as heck can take care of Laban. One would think. Yeah. And so once you're allowed to trust your own intuition and the stuff that's moving inside of you, you generally are going to come out with a better, generally, because there are sociopaths and narcissists. There are people who are unhealthy, but for the most, for most of us, we're going to come out with a healthier morality than the God of the old Testament. 
again, another story is that God does this thing where he says, if, if this guy over here rapes this woman, all this guy has to do is take 30 pieces of silver to the father. I don't know what the amount is. It's not 30 pieces, but two shecklings or whatever it is to the father. And now he has permission and safety in their culture to marry his sexual assault victim. Yeah. Now, from her point of view, I can't imagine anything worse than being made to marry the person who raped you. And yet we're to believe that's the morality of God in, in the Old Testament of how the world works. And I, I just found that when I was given permission, when I gave myself permission to trust my intuition, my morality and ethics seemed much more grounded and reasonable than the creator of the universe. Well, I, I think you're right on all of this because there's some very troubling accounts. My wife puts it this way. She, she said the Old Testament is mostly about how not to be. Uh, in other words, the things yeah. we may learn from it aren't what we're told we're supposed to learn from it. Instead, what we can learn from it is here's a whole host of things that tell you don't be anything like this. Um, yeah. and, it's almost and, a trick. It's almost a trick to see who will buck the system and do the right thing. Well, yeah, I think you're I think you're you're on to, to a core issue in this, which is that. Um, a lot of times, in fact, I think you said earlier in the interview, you talked about knowing what God is not more than you know what God is or divine or whatever name we we care to associate in, whether it's conscious or not, whatever it is that lies beyond the apparent, right, lies beyond the manifestation, what we might call essential, the glue of the cosmos or however we want to approach that, that uh, sometimes you know more about what it's not. And we find that within Sufism as it came through, uh, it's been transmitted through several traditions, but one of them is the Islamic tradition. And of course, the the witness of faith in Islam is la ilaha illallah, which means there is no God but Allah. And it's that there is no, that it, uh, there's a lot of no's in that statement. It's, it's considered a, a negative declaration of faith. And it says, anything I look at, that's not God. Anything, anything that is manifested is manifested for the Sufi uh, by the power uh, or the influence, however you want to talk about it, of the divine. That's what makes this happen. But it is not the divine. So I can't look at an atom and find the divine. Or I can't look at, a, at that person's life and find the divine. But yeah, I can. All pointing to the moon. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so the notion here is to proceed from doubt, that, that doubt is the starting place. Um, Jalaluddin Rumi, this wonderful Sufi poet, put it, he said, it is, it is far easier to escape the veils of darkness than it is the veils of light. And what he meant by that is doubt, doubt you can work with. But when you think you already know it all, that's where you're really stuck. And so the danger, it seems to me, of many religious traditions and philosophical traditions and political traditions and uh, of these things is that the authority has been assumed by someone other than the self, and then you're told of a certainty. You, you, you're told, begin with certainty and live your life instead of, wait a minute, uh, because if a person doubts, then, then they can experience something that leads them further uh, along a path that they find uh, meaningful and desirable. But if somebody already knows everything, then, then they truly are damned. So Rumi's yeah. veil of darkness and veil of light. We have a leader in our shared tradition who said, doubt your doubts, right? Uh, yeah. And 
And maybe I'm not on board with that. Maybe, but I also think if he would have followed it up and said, and also doubt the doubting of your doubts, right? Uh, like, yeah, sure. like keep being curious, like doubt everything. Um, be a skeptic about it all. My wife has a saying in her work. She's a, she's a lead teller for a major financial institution and, mm. uh, and she has a policy of trust, but verify. So when someone tells you something new and they're telling you a rumor or how the world works or whatever, like maybe trust it. If somebody's saying like this thing is real or this happened, trust it, but verify this Will Smith thing happened with uh, uh, Chris Rock yeah. and, and at the, uh, the Oscars. That. And um, my daughter gets somebody telling her this conspiracy theory that it was staged and that Chris Rock had a pad on his face. Right. So okay. she sends me a picture of Chris Rock with a pad on his face to show that it was fixed. Yeah. And my daughter and, you know, 80% of the human population immediately go, ha look at that. Yeah. Me. No, nope, I doubt my doubts. And I doubt the doubting of my doubts. I go online and I find a hundred pictures of the moment when it happened. And I scan in really close and I see there is no pad that somebody had Photoshopped a pad on to try to create this conspiracy story. And it isn't real. And so when people tell me things, I just, in most instances, I'm either skeptical or I trust, but verify. And I find that that leads us to being at least closer to reality. Although we all believe things that aren't true, every single one of us, and we wouldn't know it. Otherwise we wouldn't believe it. <laughs> well, that's very, this is the, this is the idea that through uh, opposites or, or through comp, I think it was complementary polarities. They aren't necessarily true opposites, but it's through that, that we can begin to distinguish what we accept and what we don't accept. And yeah. so again, experience for me lies at the root of it, but we don't tap into our experience. We listen to someone else who tells us what it is. I've got the real, the real deal here. It was a patch on somebody's face, or it was a, I don't know, some weird pizzeria that traffics in children or, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I hear, you know, yeah. Wait for furniture. Got kids inside the desk. You know. <laughs> just going, um, okay. Yeah. All right. Whatever. And and if it's true, what does it do for you? If it's true, so what? You, 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 I mean, what are you going to do? Go fix yeah. Chris Rock? Or no, Bruce I can't. Man? Can't solve the problem if it's all fixed. Um, and, and and yet we're so fascinated by it. And I go, well, it's a absolutely no benefit to to anybody. These theories, they don't solve anything. Uh, they just make people angry. So I wanted to come back to to maybe something here, which is, um, so what mystical systems tend to offer is maybe what you were experiencing with ayahuasca or other things, which is, is there a role for someone then who can assist but not assume authority over the other person and their, their self? In other words, are these... Are these wisdom traditions, do, do they offer some sense of value if, if, we're very, if we're gentle with people and we don't say, I'm the authority, you have to do what I say, uh, you have to believe what I tell you to believe, but instead come up and, and engage in not merely conversations, but in a, in a path of, of, uh, 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 that hopefully allows a person to awaken to their own their own reality and their own truth. What might you see? So wisdom tradition, spirituality, rather than religion and authority, um, that's something I, I just want to talk about for just a second, um, if you have thoughts on that. 
Yeah. To tie these two together, the two things we just, now the question you've asked and the statements and talk, things we were saying just before, uh, the the founder of our shared tradition, Joseph Smith said, in proving contraries, truth is made manifest. Yeah. Uh, because there are contradictions that are also true, such as the one we said at the beginning, where we are both alone and interconnected with everything. And so now you're asking, how how essentially does healthy spirituality work? And I will go back to that uh, ayahuasca ceremony. Uh, the shaman there um, had a bunch of rituals that he did. He had a little tiny desk that he kneeled down on the ground in front of. Um, he blew tobacco smoke into the room. Uh, he had little like potions and elixirs kind of sitting around. And then he had the ayahuasca medicine. And we were so curious because, you know, here we all, we all, for the most part, I think other than one person, 13 of us came from the same shared system. And this, this ritual was completely foreign to us. We were all called to the medicine. We were all excited to be there. And as we saw him start this ritual, because we had no expectation of what this was going to look like. As he knelt before his little tiny desk and started to blow tobacco smoke around, started to sing little songs, started to do stuff, we interrupted him. We're like, whoa, hold on a minute, because we're curious people. Right. We shouldn't have gotten in the way of his ritual, but we did. And we're like, what are you doing here? He goes, he goes, this is the ritual that that I've been taught to facilitate this ceremony, but I also don't have a clue what we're doing here. Like, <laughs> like the like the ritual is just made to get you to buy in on some intellectual level so that the medicine does its job. And his phrase throughout the night was the medicine is the teacher. So in that ceremony, uh, there were moments where he had two female helpers with him. He was a guy, he had two women with him. They all played instruments. They all had beautiful singing voices. They would sit in different spots of the room at various parts of the night. And they sang these songs that are not, they're not recorded anywhere. There's no way you can find this music. It's their, it's their self-created music for this ceremony. Some of the songs sang about family. Some of the songs spoke to trauma. Some of the songs talked about the creation of the universe. They sang the song. So there is some uh, soft boundaries, right? There is some maybe topic parameters. But outside of that, you you realized completely in that ceremony that you were perfectly safe to allow the medicine to take you wherever it wanted. Some songs invited you to purge. The music, he would start to sing and play the guitar and suddenly three or four people in the room where no one has thrown up for an hour, suddenly three or four people in the room are starting to make noises that it's about to happen. Mm. Um, some songs called the people that were in that space to go ahead and relax and stop purging. So you'd suddenly a new song would start and you would suddenly feel that go away. Um, they used music as an invitation for you to enter certain topic spaces but without any parameters for what you needed to conclude or what it all meant. And I think the healthiest of spiritualities doesn't define anything for you. It suggests very basic topic parameters and allows us all to have our own experience and then to come back and learn from each other without it being unsafe to say anything, without it being unsafe to disagree, without it being unsafe to say the authority, excuse my language, is full of shit, right? Because in some instances they are, and and in most systems there's no safety to tell anyone that the authority is full of crap, right? I think a lot of times, uh, just to pause that there for a second, is the the authority may be incredibly sincere, 
and and maybe doing what they think is right. But Amen. we we often don't stop to question uh, where where our authority may end or where it should end. And uh, you know that that what happens is we also I think sometimes are uh, inwardly afraid. I wonder if we're sometimes like the emperor. We found our new clothes, but we know out there there's a child in the audience who say, "Mommy, why is he naked?" And and so I think that there's there's sort of several factors that go into authority that can make it unhealthy. Although the authority themselves may be acting out of complete sincerity, and so we have to be skeptical about our own knowledge, and we have to be skeptical about our own position. And I think that's what you're saying about spiritual paths is that. The shaman or myself as, as a Sufi master, I should be I should be doubtful of my own uh, ability. I should be doubtful of, of what I'm saying to this person. I should do a lot of listening and uh, maybe offer some suggestions here and there and, um, you know, and, and allow it to allow a sort of a spiritual healing to take place, maybe, or a spiritual growth. And so uh, often Sufi masters are called physicians of the heart. What we mean by that is we, we try some things and we see where they go, but we're really not heart surgeons. We're, the heart has to repair itself. We're just there to facilitate heart repair. So anyway, yeah, just a hundred percent pause on that. And just to note that in the unhealthiest of systems, or at least in the unhealthiest of rhetoric, there is often in some of these systems the teaching that you can't criticize the leader even if the criticism is true, Correct. right? Like, so we ought to always feel safe to feel out and follow our intuition while also having our own intuition countered with other humans' experiences Absolutely. and wisdom as well. And, and so it is a it is a real wrestle. I love the idea of wrestling because it really is. I, I shouldn't assume that I know all the answers. I also shouldn't assume my authority and my system knows all the answers. I shouldn't assume my guru has all the answers. I shouldn't assume my group of friends have all the answers. We should always be listening to the outside world and listening to what's going on inside of us. And the healthiest of us will generally come out having mixed those two together into what becomes a much healthier, uh, productive way to live a life. I think that what you've said touches upon where we began with this discussion of religion and mystical experience and spirituality, which is uh, it's experientially based. And as a result, it, it's going to have all of the variety we see in the world around us that each human is going to have their own experience and that it is in the sharing that we can create communities of sharing, but communities of authority, um, are, are kind of a different thing. And so as a Sufi master, or maybe as a, the shaman in your ayahuasca ceremony, what we do is not take ourselves too seriously. We have been trained to do rituals and, and maybe we ourselves don't know what the rituals fully mean and maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, and so we can have a flexible system in which everybody is a welcome around that campfire. Mm -hmm. Everybody's welcome to put on a plate, whatever they want to put on a plate and uh, share it around. Mm -hmm. And uh, we taste each other's experiences. We taste each other's pain, each other's sorrow, each other's joy, each other's bliss, each other's questions, each other's doubts, each other's certainties. And, and that's the benefit of it right there. And, and yeah. then we take it back into our soul, into ourself, 
and we 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 decide how that truly will help us which is back to the question can i be a mormon and a mystic from myself yeah but i've adjusted my sense of mormonism in ways that are quite different than what i suspect are going on with other people in other words my mormonism now fits that model so if i have an authority i'm listening to a conference and authorities telling me how i have to think how i have to feel i go well i'm not so sure about that uh the ones that really get me are the talks that god loves conditionally I'm just going, yeah. I, that's, I, no, I can't, I can't buy into that one. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, sometimes I get up and I go have an extended drink of water and then come back and sit down and start over again. But we should have permission to do that. We should have permission to say, you know, I think I need to take a break. And, yeah. uh, and that we shouldn't judge. At any rate, I don't know. We should, if, uh, we should have permission to do that. Permission uh, to yeah. ourselves, permission within the system. We should love others enough to say, you don't have to agree with me and I don't have to agree with you to love you. And yeah. that's unconditional love, right? Where you go, I'm not going to put a condition upon it. Now, you may have circumstances which you have to protect the defenseless right, boundaries or whatever. Yeah. Right, right. But within, within all of that. Um, so I just had another thought and just wanted to pose it to you, which is, I think we kind of scratched the surface of this incredibly um, important topic of atheism and religion and spirituality and maybe what it means to be an atheist. I, I think it's fascinating that your own experience has become a very powerful guide for you, whether it's ayahuasca, whether it's on a trampoline, uh, that, that, that it's not that you're an atheist in an absolute sense, but but definitely in in other terms about who has authority and et cetera, and what it really means and what these myths might be. Um, but I wanted to pose maybe in a, a few weeks or something, maybe coming back and having another discussion. Uh, one of the great um, one of the great uh, Sufi topics is on the topic of veils. What we mean by veils is the ways in which we block ourselves from our own experience or the ways we block ourselves from um, our own uh, sense of spiritual progress. Uh, for the Sufi, the veil is something we impose. Uh, the divine doesn't impose veils. The divine wants to be known from our perspective. The divine wants to be understood. Uh, and so uh, maybe, maybe we could talk about veils or maybe there's something else you would like to talk uh, about. But I thought that, uh, you know, if you're willing, maybe we can have you back on a little. I, I'd love that. And to go back to what we started off with this, because yeah. you're pointing to this uh, idea of me calling myself an atheist. By the way, I'm I'm very open to uh, concepts of God. I'll give you an example. Um, the algae that was on the ocean four billion years ago is is us at some earlier stage, right? Like it it is us. And yet, if you could talk to that algae, if you could take a time machine and go back in time 4 billion years and, and sit with that algae and go, hey, could you even fathom what the world is going to become? Could you even comprehend? It, it couldn't. It couldn't even grasp at all. So if there is another planet out there that has um, sentient life on it, and if that planet's sentient life started a million years before us, it, it, it developed consciousness a million years before we did. We humans couldn't even fathom what that conscious sentient being would be, look like, how its brain would work, how it would process information, and the kinds of technology it would invent, right? Yeah. 
And so if there is that, I can I can buy into a scenario where some species that is so far advanced from us, a million years further ahead, they've already worked out not having war anymore. They've already worked out how to make resources last without depleting their planet. You know, I could see because I have a scientific mind and because we humans have a scientific mind, it's rational to me that that species could plant seeds or try to get life started somewhere else. And then over the next, you know, million years, watch it happen. Mm-hmm. And so there's room for me to go. Like there is something more intelligent than me that is conscious that has done the scientific experiment to see how life might develop somewhere else. And here we are. And regardless of whether that meets the definition of God that others have placed on God, it at least makes a connection that there is some other being out in the universe that is watching us that created us and has a interest in what we're doing. And I can buy into that. That seems rational. I think you're, you're again onto something, you know? Um, So in my own experience, uh, I grew up, uh, I was turning into a young man or probably ages 11 through 14 or 15 when the Apollo mission were headed to the moon. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just that, which for me was monumental. Uh, ever since I've been a very young boy, I watched every space launch I could. I think I, I think I saw the launches of every Mercury mission, every Gemini mission, every Apollo mission. I was absolutely fascinated by all of this idea of reaching out and exploring. But, but there also was the myth that really influenced me very deeply from this in the form of the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. Which talk, which talks a lot about what you're talking about, right? The monolith shows up. The monolith affects the the primate minds that are there interacting with it. They begin the process of tool making, and they they begin the process of self awareness, and so on and so forth. And then it moves into the future, into space stations, and we're still struggling with consciousness. And it ends up at the end with the star child you know, featured as this cosmic embryo looking over the world. But throughout the entire series of it is this idea of, of being watched over. It came from Arthur Clarke's original story called The Sentinel, which was a signal left behind so mm-hmm. humans could find and know that, that they're not only not alone, but they are being watched over. So uh, I think that, that uh, the, there are myths out there and there are stories that can be understood in exactly the way you want to understand them. I mean, that I still, every January 1st, I watch uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey again to pull myself back into that human evolution development consciousness uh, uh, myth that affected me so. So as we conclude again, I'm going to draw to close here. It's been a, a beautiful day, but back to the idea of maybe the problem with the myth is we someone is telling us what it means and what we have to believe. And so the, the, the problem isn't the myth itself. Maybe even the problem isn't the scripture itself or the kind of the religion itself in its core elements. The real challenge is authority and someone telling us what we have to believe and what we, what we have to think. So anyway, mm, I love uh, it. Yeah. I'm, amen to that. You and I are on the same page. Well, that's beautiful. And I want to thank you. This has uh, been of Saints and Sufis, Musings of a Mormon Mystic. And uh, I've been having a delightful, beautiful, insightful sharing conversation with Bill Real, my guest today. Um, and I would uh, refer you to his podcast, Almost Awakened, 
number 93 of Saints and Sufis. This is where we first connected up. And in a real sense, this podcast is an extension of that. I will hook that up with a link on my website. I encourage you to, to get connected with Bill and his work and uh, want to wish you all a blessed and peaceful day. I'm going to sing the song I was taught by my master to sing at the conclusion of everything. So here we are. May all beings be well. May all beings be happy. Peace, peace, peace. I wish peace to you, Bill, to your family, to all those you know and love. I wish contentment, happiness on your life's journey. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate that. Same back at you.